You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Doug Robbins. If you're new to our church, welcome to City Tribe Church. I want to extend a special welcome to those of you that are our spiritual investigators. If you're just kicking the tires of Christianity, we hope you'll have an experience of God today through this worship experience. Now, as you know, we're deeply saddened as we mourn the murder of George Floyd. And in case you haven't noticed, I'm white. And my white privilege doesn't mean that my life hasn't been hard. It just means that my skin color isn't one of the things making it harder. You know, my dad never had to have the talk with me. And if you're black, you know that the talk has nothing to do with the birds and bees, but it's when your parents had to talk with you about how to act if you're ever pulled over by the police. Now, I realize that something was off when I was in high school And my black friend, Ronnie, came to faith in Christ, and he started attending my predominantly white church. And I was so happy that everyone seemed to really accept Ronnie. They even thought it was cute when he got baptized, and he shook his wet afro and shook water all over the church choir. Everyone was cool with Ronnie until he started dating one of the white girls in the church youth group. And I ended up in the pastor's office getting lectured as the pastor pointed out Old Testament passages that were actually misinterpreted to look like God didn't want the races to mix. I'll have more to say on that here in just a minute. But I've always remembered that experience. It made a mark on me. And the way I feel about that part of my background is captured in a poem by a guy who was a former skinhead. His name is Jason Carney. Take a look. My southern heritage lies in the smell of June. It was my mammal. She was half Choctaw, half snuff, half crazed by the spirit of the wind, giving her a sense she called the touch. She could see things, catch a firefly with a tongue. She'd rub the swollen fluorescence of their bellies to my forehead, a good vision on my birthday, and she always told me I would grow to be a man that knew life by the way it felt. That when I walked in the wandering reflection of dreams, I should stand strong and tall as Papaw because he was a man who life by the way it felt and his heart was in my eyes, his soul within my breath. My southern heritage lies in their simplicity, poverty, and faith. Baseball games on an old AM radio and the closeness of a family sharing Sunday supper. My southern heritage was Sundays. Baptist revivals, deacons passing the altar plate and deep voices from the choir urging me to go tell it on the mountain because Jesus Christ is Lord. And I love that old hymn. But I can't think about those fond memories of childhood anymore without seeing through the pessimism of these eyes, which are of a man. And I have to ask myself, what kind of truth those old white Southern Baptists found on those mountaintops? Why couldn't they hear the voices dangling from the branches of the elms, the dead that have been peeled away into the forgotten generation after generation, woven into our skin, into our bones, all because they were silent? Practiced it, turning their heads. Their heritage lies in the shades of my skin. It's twisted and scarred, worn by their words, colored Negro and So why don't we go find the truth on the mountaintop that says, My Southern Heritage came clothed in white sheets and allows a rebel flag to hang this very day over the capital of Mississippi. My Southern Heritage spent centuries of time where people are silent and practiced it turning their heads. See, we're the threads of rope that pulled James Byrd to his death along the back roads of Jasper, Texas. Less than 200 miles from where I live, ignorance reigns. My Southern Heritage spent centuries of time 
where people of silent practice it, turning their heads. It boils under my skin when my eyes don't have heart, when my soul's not in my breath. See, if I'm to grow to be that man that knows life by the way it feels, then these lessons got to be mine to see the truth of and find the responsibility to teach to my little girl. Because I don't want her southern heritage lying in the shades of her skin. She's half Thai. Half Irish, Choctaw, and snuff. She will speak in multicultural phrases combining Thai, Laotian, and Hick. Sabadi Kai, y'all. <laughs> and I'm gonna catch fireflies with my tongue. Rub the swollen fluorescence of their bellies to her forehead. A good vision on her birthday. Well, she will travel amongst the dead and learn the lessons of their lives. Spill the dust of stars and planets. Exist in the deepest reaches of the mind. She will tell the truth on that mountaintop. But she will not succumb to the wounds of a bone. She will not be silent. And she will not ever be practiced at turning her head. In light of that poem and what we'll see in the Bible today at City Tribe, we will never be silent or turn our heads. Today is a declaration that each of us will make. I will not be silent or turn my head. And over the past week, I found myself just kind of randomly crying. And I know I'm not alone. So this week, I called some of my black friends in our church to advise me on this teaching. One of them was Aaron Dockery, a City Tribe Advisory Board member who you've seen teach here on numerous occasions. Aaron's discipleship class has been one of the more popular classes over the years here at City Tribe. And he said that if your finger is hurt, that you wrap your, your hand around it to heal it. And he said that the body of Christ is there to rally around hurting members. And today is about our whole church rallying around our black brothers and sisters who are hurting right now. We're wrapping ourselves around you. And as we continued to talk, Aaron quoted 1 Corinthians 13 about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And today is about loving our black brothers and sisters. Now, another friend that I talked to this past week was Robbie Hill. She's kind of like a spiritual granddaughter to me since her mom came to faith in Christ in my youth group back in the day when I was a youth pastor. You may recognize Robbie from the reading that she did last Sunday at church. She's also a key student leader at City Youth during the week, and she explained that she's seen enough racism that she feels desensitized to it, has a hard time feeling because she's seen so much of it. But when she saw that video of George Floyd being murdered, it broke through her desensitization and brought tears to her eyes. As I heard this dear young woman in our church speak those words, it like broke me. Well, then I called up Debs McCrary. Now, I've known Debs for a number of years. She was gracious enough to introduce me to Spurs legend, the Iceman, George Gervin, a couple of years ago. And on a normal Sunday here at City Tribe, Debs can be seen greeting people at the door of our church. But what most of you don't know is that Debs is an experienced op-ed columnist, editor, and freelance writer. She's been published in Reader's Digest, Essence, and Newsweek. She's a spiritual mother in this house, and you're going to hear more from Debs later on, but 
If anyone watching this service had the right to be angry about racism, it would be Debs McCrary. When she was a little girl, she was yanked around by an angry white gas station employee for almost walking into the whites-only restrooms. When Debs was a little girl, there were still colored restrooms. She could have told me stories of blatant racism all day long. Well, because of Debs's experience over the years, she said this is nothing new. And unfortunately, she's right. She said the only reason we know about it now is because of cell phone cameras. She was basically conveying the sentiments of Will Smith, who said racism is not getting any worse. It's just getting filmed. And what we're talking about today isn't new at all. It's not a new conversation to our church or in our culture. Anybody remember names like James Byrd and Rodney King? Anybody remember the controversial question, did OJ do it? Do you remember the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, or the violence at the protest in Charlottesville, the Emanuel Nine in Charleston, and now it's Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd? Well, today, we believe it's appropriate to honor George Floyd and his family, who are now dealing with grief and a complex situation that would crush most people. I wanted you to know a few things about George Floyd. As a younger man, it's reported that he had some problems in life and with the law. Thankfully, George went through a change when he believed in Jesus Christ. Now, it's totally predictable that some people who hear me say that are going to very quickly post websites that drudge up George Floyd's past imperfections. And I want to ask you something. Would you want your life under that kind of scrutiny? I can tell you I wouldn't. Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged. George Floyd also led a basketball outreach in the third ward in inner city Houston. He helped the church secure a space on a basketball court in a notoriously rough neighborhood so that they could conduct worship services there. In a now viral video, Floyd pleaded with young men to put down their guns and stop the violence. George was active in sharing his faith in Jesus Christ, leading young men to saving faith and helping them grow in their faith. So today, we honor the life of George Floyd. But why would we do that? Well, because as Jesus followers, we look in the Bible and we see a theology of diversity a theology of diversity. Now, a lot of people are okay with people from other races until it comes to that watershed issue that I surfaced earlier, and that is interracial marriage or interracial dating. Now, don't let people fool you by misinterpreting certain passages in the Old Testament like Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 3. It says, do not intermarry with them and don't let your daughters and your sons marry their sons and daughters. They will lead your young people away from me to worship other gods. What's that talking about? Well, I think it's clearly referring to incompatible spirituality, not skin color. If it's skin color as a white guy, I'm in trouble because that group of Jewish people were most likely brown-skinned people and would have been told to exclude people like me. We also see in the Old Testament that Moses married a black woman. Did you know that? Look with me at Numbers chapter 12. We'll look at verse 1. It says, while they were at Hazareth, 
Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. Well, what's a Cushite? <laughs> what's a Cushite woman? And by the way, men, never call your wife Cushy, okay? That's not a good idea at all. But the land of Cush is Ethiopia. Quick question for you. What color are people from Ethiopia? I think you know the answer to that question, don't you? Moses had himself a black wife. But how will God respond to Miriam and Aaron who didn't like Moses' black wife? We see the answer to that question in verse 9 of Numbers chapter 12. Look at it. The Lord was furious with them and he departed. As the cloud moved from above the tabernacle, Miriam suddenly became white as snow with leprosy. It's like God saying, Miriam, you like lighter skin? I'll give you skin that's white with leprosy. And lest you think that darkness is always some metaphor for sin and evil in the Bible, here's a place that the color white is clearly a metaphor for something unclean and for sin right here in the Bible. So in light of this text, how do you think God feels about people who criticize interracial marriages? It's clear. Now look, I'm a white guy who did 23andMe DNA testing, hoping to find something interesting, only to find out that I'm mostly white with just a little bit of Cherokee Indian. You know, this is what white people do. We love to take DNA testing to find out all the variations of white that we are. But really, I'm just a white guy with a white daughter. And you know, my friend, Aaron Dockery is a black man with a beautiful half black, half white daughter. Her name's Jessica. And as we've discussed it, We've talked about would either of us encourage our daughters to date a guy of another skin color or race? And the answer is, of course not. Aaron and I have agreed that no boys are allowed to date our daughters at all. No boys. They're all evil except for daddy. But if someday we cave, we would say that we want our daughters to marry men who love Jesus walk in the spirit, have jobs, are not materialistic, they're compassionate to the poor, and they root for the San Antonio Spurs. God, this is what we ask. And we want to look at the young men that our daughters perhaps choose to date in accordance with 1 Samuel chapter 16. Look with me at verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So if we're supposed to look as the Lord does on the heart and not turn our heads and all of that, uh, what are some of the practical things that we can do? I think that's the question for us, isn't it? We all want to do something. Well, I have a few suggestions here. One is, as best you can, influence systems of oppression. Now, here's what I mean by that. So much as you have any influence on systems of hiring at jobs, influence equality in those hirings. If you have influence on systems in education or access to education, influence equality. If you have influence in systems of housing availability, influence equality, or legal systems, influence equality, or church systems, influence equality. 
So we want to influence these systems that right now are not set up to include everyone. But another thing we can do is we can refuse to believe a single story. Perhaps some of you saw the TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story. Uh, it features Chimamanda Adichie. She's a Nigerian author who, as a student, she came to America to attend university. And her white roommate asked her things like, can I hear your tribal music? And Chimamanda was kind of confused by that. And she said, you mean, uh, what, Mariah Carey? I mean, her roommate's default posture was pity not equality. And the roommate had believed a single story about Africans that positioned all Africans as living in poverty and ignorance. So when you ask a black friend in college if he's there on a basketball scholarship, you've probably believed a single story. And it's the single stories that lead to a lot of misunderstanding. Did you know that most people today are actually believing a single story about Christianity? Most people have heard that Christianity is a religion or system of oppression. They only know the story of how some religious people have totally botched race relations. What many would be surprised by is the fact that Christ followers led the way in the abolition of slavery. People like William Wilberforce, who at one time was a racist, but then he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when Christ came into his life, he was completely changed and he became the major catalyst to end slavery in the British Empire and pave the way for the end of slavery in the United States. Then there's people like John Rankin, who was a Presbyterian pastor in the South, who was one of the founders of the American Anti-Slavery Society. He concluded from a careful study of the scriptures that slavery was morally evil. He basically told his congregation that if you really want to follow Jesus, you need to free your slaves. Then the corrupt church fired him and ran him out of town, and he moved to the north to set up a new church on the north side of the Ohio River because Ohio was a free state at that time. And the other side of the river was Kentucky, a slave state. So Rankin intentionally bought a house on the north side of the Ohio River, and it became one of the main stops on the Underground Railroad, a network of safe places where anti-slavery activists would hide slaves escaping from the South. Rankin would put a lamp in the window and make it blink a certain number of times to signal to the escaping slaves that it was safe to cross the river. His house was burned down multiple times by pro-slavery mobs, but he kept rebuilding because he wanted to help people get free. Those who only listen to a single story think that it was only white Christian people who owned slaves. But Harriet Tubman shows us another story. She was a black Christ follower who prayed for her white non-Christian master. And her prayer went something like this. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. And after she escaped and had her freedom, Harriet Tubman became the most influential leader of the Underground Railroad, a follower of Jesus Christ. Those who've been around here uh, for any time at all know that the gathering place for our church is a monument to equality. This cameo theater that I'm in right now was the first African-American theater in San Antonio where everyone could walk through the front doors and come in. 
great musicians like Bats Domino, B.B. King, and Louis Armstrong played right here on this stage. So dear black brothers and sisters, if we were meeting in the Cameo Theater right now, I would invite everyone who's not black to literally stand up from their seats and commit to stand with you and speak up for you. And you know what? They would do it. And since we're not physically in the cameo, I'd like to ask all of you who are not black to post in the comments on the channel you're watching this service on in solidarity with our black family members, these words. Just post, I will not be silent or turn my head. I will not be silent or turn my head. Now, black brothers and sisters, if you're watching the comments right now, I hope it tells you that there's a group of people who are with you. To continue in your healing, I'd like to do a little exercise with you. Today, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stand in for the people who have made you feel marginalized because of the color of your skin. So look me in the eyes as I confess to you, for every system I've created or participated in that has oppressed you, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? When I called you a racial slur, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? When I was silent about racism and didn't speak up for you, I was wrong. Please forgive me. For my prejudice, both intentional and microaggressions, I was completely wrong. Will you please forgive me? My commitment to you is that I will not be silent or turn my head. And today we're mourning with you. And today we're encouraging you to dare to dream again. It was in a dream that God wouldn't let Peter turn his head from Cornelius, a Gentile, a man of another race. I wanna show you this in Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 15. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God made it clean. Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism in every nation. He accepts those who fear him and do what is right. You can dream again because if you were to look around on this stream and in our church, there would be all kinds of different people who are part of your family. They're Democrats, Republicans, computer nerds, and artists, every age, race, and walk of life. Some of your family come from backgrounds of prison, drugs. Some came from cults. Some from really, really dark backgrounds like Baptists, Methodists, and naughty Catholics who if their grandma knew that they were on the city tribe stream and not Catholic church, she'd smack them with a chunkla. You can dream again because of the truth of Galatians chapter three. Look at verse 27, it says, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have been made like him. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are one in Christ Jesus. Look, you can dream again like Isaiah did in Isaiah 56. Look at verse six. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord. 
I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. My temple will be called a house of prayer for, get it, all nations. So dear brothers and sisters at times, I know you've thought to yourself, maybe my kids won't have to endure racism. And then recent events just completely dashed your hopes. But I wanna ask you to please not lose hope. Don't lose hope. Dare to dream yet again. Don't take it from me. Take it from the man who said, I have a dream that my children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. When we let freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Look, those words are not trite, they are true hold on to that dream, to that vision. And until we get there, we will not be silent or turn our heads. But whether or not our country repents and reforms the systems of oppression, we are a part of a kingdom that is coming. And our future is described in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. As I read from Revelation, dream with me about living in that future Revelation 7, 9, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, look at it, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were shouting with a mighty shout, salvation comes from our God on the throne and from the Lamb, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever. Amen. On that day, we will praise Him in unity for His amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see.
bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We've no, we've no. In closing, if you're sheltered in place with others, reach out a hand towards them. If you're alone, extend your arms, palms up in supplication. May God our Father direct us in the way he wants us to go during this critical time of sickness and unrest. Father, we ask for your ears, not just to hear, but to truly listen to what's being said both to and about us for your eyes to see beyond ourselves and our own selfish interests and desires, for the compassion of Jesus to feel the pain of others as though it were our very own, for patience, understanding, and healing, that they will lead us to paths of service and helpful solutions, not anger and destruction. And finally, for the calmness needed to appreciate the wisdom the Holy Spirit provides each and every day guiding us to do your will for all humanity because we are all your children and we know that you love us. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.